This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Welcome to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast. My name is Sam and I'm your host and joining me today is none other than Richard Blackaby. Good to be with you, Sam. It's always a pleasure, Richard. You know, before we get started, I have to confess I did a thing this past week and Uh-oh. that was sign up for a 100-mile bike ride. I heard that. How many days are you going to take that in? Yeah, <laughs> I, I figured I'd break it up into a four-part series. <laughs> 100 miles. Yeah, wow. so it's the uh, the Georgia 400 Century Ride. And that's the 400 referring to the interstate in Georgia. So we actually get to ride. I guess it's more of a highway than an interstate. But mm-hmm. I think you get to ride a few miles on the interstate and wow. and then do the rest kind of on back roads and, and what stuff. What time of year is that? Yeah, it's going to get it's pretty June, hot. So it's going to oh. be, it's going to just be. Is your bike air conditioned? It is. It's as fast as I can pedal. <laughs> so well, for any miles. of our listeners who are bike enthusiasts, uh, recommendations and tips, welcome. So hopefully yeah. I can make it out of this in one piece. I don't know if I can drive 100 miles anymore without at least a rest break. So, <laughs> Well, thankfully there are, I think, uh, a number of uh, rest areas along the way. So I don't necessarily have to take it all in one in one stride. But uh, we'll... we'll We'll keep our listeners posted on on the outcome of that for sure. But today we're going to look at um, a famed person of influence and yeah. a household name mm-hmm. that uh, that many will know, and that's uh, the leadership and, and life of Walt Disney. Yeah, the, the who invented the happiest place on earth in Disneyland, he, Disney he did World. Indeed. Yeah, uh, we, you know we like to drop in on some biographies. I've got a biography by Neil Gabler called Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination, and uh, read this one a little while ago. And uh, and uh, he fits the pattern that we've seen with all these biographies, that uh, you could say a flawed person in some ways, um, mm-hmm. uh, a person overcoming his past, uh, hurts and insecurities or whatever else, uh, uh, and experiencing plenty of failure along the way, and yet ultimately becoming very successful. And uh, yeah, uh, well, let's maybe start with uh, some of that those past failures and maybe his early life, and uh, you know, where did he come from, and and what shaped him to be? I mean, you know, we always see the the end result. It seems, but yeah. there's a, a lot of details in there. Yeah, well, Roy, uh, our, our Walt, I uh, was thinking his brother Roy uh, was about eight years older than him, and he had a couple of other older brothers. Uh, Walt was one of the younger ones there, but he uh, actually was raised in Missouri, uh, grew up in his formative years in the Kansas City area, and uh, you, you don't really think of that. You forget that most people aren't born in Hollywood. You know, yeah. <laughs> they, they make it there, but, uh, but he started out in, in Kansas City, and, uh, you know, like a lot of these guys, he, he had a kind of a strained relationship with his father. His father was one of these guys that uh, never really was very successful in business, was uh, always living hand to mouth, uh, never had much money, very frugal, uh, was always trying to figure out how to save money and not spend money and, and he always paid his bills in cash and he, he wasn't a dishonest person, he just wasn't very successful and didn't make very much money. And so, um, and he was pretty strict, uh, strict with, uh, Walt. In fact, apparently at one point Walt was, uh, uh, his dad got real angry at him for something that wasn't even really 
very much Walt's fault, but his dad was just, he was an angry man because he was a frustrated man. So he, he ordered Walt down to the basement where he was going to beat him, you know, punish him. And, uh, and by that time, Walt was bigger and stronger than his dad. And his older brother, Roy, just said to Walt, like, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to submit to that. And, uh, so his dad went to strike him and Walt kind of grabbed the, the weapon at hand and, and uh, basically just stared down his dad and let him know that was the end of that. And, uh, mm-hmm. and their relationship changed after that, obviously. And uh, years later, when Walt began to have a little more success, he ultimately bought a, a, built a house uh, in California for his parents to live in. I don't think his dad had been able to afford to buy a house. And he uh, bought a house and or, or built a house for them to live in, a brand new house. And uh, which was very magnanimous of of Walt. Apparently, though, they did something wrong with the furnace and it put a bunch of carbon monoxide poisoning in the house. And his mother, who he was very close to, ultimately died from it. His his dad survived. But uh, uh, when you read about Walt Disney, you just see a lot of uh, interesting dynamics going on, uh, filled with ambition, filled with optimism, always dreaming, always, even when he's desperate, desperately poor, you know, he's always dreaming of what he could do one day. He was always gifted at uh, drawing. He was a good artist and, uh, but he, he found school kind of boring. And, uh, so he, um, in fact, his parents couldn't really afford to get him to school. School was a little too far uh, to get him there. So they actually held him back a year or two until his little sister got old enough to go to school. And then they then they sent him like in the same grade as his baby sister. And so it was humiliating to him. Yeah. You know, he was older and starting school late and he found school kind of boring. He was, uh, at one point his teacher put him in a, I, I don't quite know how they managed this in the class, but the teacher called it like the, the, the chair for the second stupidest student in the classroom <laughs> so i mean on, on a positive note there was at least one person there considered more stupid yeah. than the wall but isn't it interesting how many of these people that ultimately are viewed as brilliant uh, successful people their school teachers thought they were not so bright yeah yeah and you know part of that i think he was just a dreamer and uh what you know as you read these you realize well sometimes people are just dreaming and but they're not doers they they don't ever put their dreams into action walt was always willing to take action after he dreamed and some of those didn't turn out well some some turned out better um but again i think with walt i think there's some things uh, a couple things about him early on especially one is that he failed a number of times and part of that was he was so optimistic that uh, he was, and he was so visionary that he really got kind of bored with details. And so he didn't pay a lot of attention to the numbers. He was never, yeah. never good at staying within budget. It was always, he didn't want to, don't bother me with numbers. You know, we just got to build this studio, whatever it costs or whatever it takes to make this movie perfect. And so he was always in danger of overrunning the budget and spending, wasting money. Uh, and, and and he was also always in danger of just trusting people too much uh, and being taken advantage of. And early on, when he's like in his early twenties, and he's starting a business, he's just too naive to tr- he he trusts people that come along and 
that are more seasoned in the business and tell him they're giving him giving him a good deal and getting him to sign papers that he hasn't really read very carefully and and then he gets into all kinds of grief and so uh, Disney would actually experience a couple of bankruptcies. Uh, at one point, he gets his basically has most of his company stolen from right under him by a competitor that comes in and uh, outweasels him and takes away the business. And uh, and so, I mean, when you read the early part of Disney, you realize, boy, he's a pretty visionary, uh, ambitious person, but uh, he th- th- he's just doesn't seem to have what it takes to really build a solid company. But, uh, but, you know, several things that he did as well. And one of the, I think one of the biggest things, just maybe to point out before the break, is that he had a brother, Roy, that was about eight years older than him. And they were polar opposites. Uh, Walt was uh, visionary. He was charismatic. Uh, he was jovial. Uh, he, he, he was once quoted as saying that, most of his life, he'd been happy and optimistic and a, and a dreamer. Uh, but he could be naive. He could be careless with numbers and careless with contracts. And Roy, who's eight years older, is much more responsible. Yeah. Uh, he's He doesn't have the personality that Walt does, so he's, Roy's never going to have the doors open for him that, that Walt will have. Uh, and so... But he can protect his little brother and protect his brother from bad deals and not making payroll and spending more money than he has. And so most everybody who's ever studied the life of Walt Disney says that uh, he never would have achieved what he did without his brother. And and it's it's what's fascinating is that now these two brothers would often fight and argue because. You know, Walt looked at his brother as just a fuddy-duddy. You know, all he ever cares about are numbers. And but you know, Walt was creating a masterpiece. And uh, and but Roy would sometimes just think this guy would just like give away the farm if left to him. Like we'd have nothing left if he'd just sign any contract to to to, to create his art. But he, he's a terrible, terrible businessman that should never be allowed to make those kind of decisions. And so. You know, there are times where they could have some really knock-down, drag-out arguments. Um, but at a, at a deeper level, it was as if they both knew they needed one another. Yeah. That Roy would just have basically a very boring, uh, mundane life uh, with nothing very extravagant or exciting or successful happening. But he'd be well-organized with his small little world. Or Walt could open up a big world for him. Uh, and give him all kinds of opportunities, but the trade-off was Roy had to protect his brother and and uh, defend him and organize him and bail him out at times when he had made a bad decision and uh, and needed rescuing. And so together they made a very strong combination. They and you you realize that uh, you know in one sense when someone's really successful, it's because they're really good at certain things. And almost invariably, that means that they're probably really bad at other things. It yeah. just—it's hard to be to excel in every area of your life. So the key is uh, instead, you know, f- partner with someone, enlist someone, hire someone who's really good at what you're not, and let them take care of that and have enough sense to not micromanage people like that. Just let them trust them. If you can get someone yeah. that you trust, like w- Walt. Completely trusted his brother. Um, and to Roy's uh, 
you know case as well they um they you know they when they called it like Walt Disney Studios or something it could have just been called Disney Studios which is kind of now what it is known as but uh, yeah. but in the formal names Walt who was 8 years younger would take he was the CEO he was the the face of the company even though Roy ran it and and organized it administrated it but Roy was the kind of guy like Walt would just say, well, let's call this Walt Disney World or Walt Disneyland or Walt Disney Studios. And Roy, who owned you know, a good portion of the company as well, would just he didn't have an ego. That, I mean, the only way that would yeah, work yeah. to work for a brother who's eight years younger than you is if you just put your ego aside and say, but this is a really exciting opportunity. And I, I just want to keep my ego out of the way. And as a result, it worked. You know, lots yeah. and lots of partnerships have fallen apart because uh, you, you, you ego got in the way. And well, it sounds like uh, Roy really knew that he was he was best as a number two yeah. guy, and he didn't have any sort of ambitions of 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 overtaking. Well, let's take a quick break here, and we'll uh, continue on our journey of of Walt Disney when we come back. Richard and Daniel Blackaby will be at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove on May 17th through 19th, 2021. The title of this event is On the Move, How God Increases Your Spiritual Influence. You can find out more and register at thecove.org. Links will also be in the show notes. Richard, you point out uh, uh, before the break that uh, really the thing that it sounds like that really made Walt Disney successful was actually the hiring of his brother Roy to sort of really run and administer things behind the scenes. And uh, that's such a, a key component of, I think, of leadership is knowing where your your sh- you know shortcomings are or where your inadequacies are and hiring to to plug those those gaps. And so maybe uh, for the rest of the, the podcast here, we can just look at the other attributes of, of Walt Disney and, and what made him a great leader. Yeah, and of course there's a number of things. One, uh, which is interesting, it, it talks about his, in the biography his tremendous power of concentration, uh, and and we've heard that about some of the other great leaders. They, yeah. they know they knew how to focus, and I've just found over and over again, focus is sort of that magical uh, ability that helps you to look farther and see things that others aren't seeing, and to solve problems that others can't solve. And so, uh, Disney was a uh, Often a whirlwind of of activity, and he'd come storming in, and 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 people were afraid of him. Uh, he said, uh, you know, in, in, at times he would even tell people, uh, "Hey, you, you don't have to all be afraid of me," because uh, when he walked in the room, all the artists and people would, you know, stand up, sit upright, and be working hard. And and he was he was such a perfectionist that you just always worried that he was going to come look at your work and think it was garbage and yeah. tell you and tell you how it could be improved. And, uh, and so, uh, one person said when, when he'd come into a room, the hair would stand up on the back of your neck figuratively. Uh, he said, he had that effect on you. You'd feel his presence. It was spooky. <laughs> he says, uh, he says, but I know it sounds, one of the guys who worked with him a long time said, I know it sounds weird, but you never got over that awe of him. Uh, he just mm. had an overwhelming power of people, a voice of a prophet, uh, said one of the animators. Uh, and so he, he was brilliant 
And he was also just, he was passionate about whatever he did. He, uh, he just had a passion for his work. And people said he had an ability. He said when he was enthused, as he usually was, he got others enthused too. He was very excited about everything he was doing. Uh, and, and he lived and breathed it. And finally it rubbed off on you. And mm. so again, you know, I, I, as I, as I read this, I, I often, I, I thought a lot about, uh, the things I'd read about Steve jobs, yeah. you know, just it's very similar, like high driven passion for things to be done well. And, uh, very artistic like jobs was as well. He was really an artist. He, yeah. he cared about presentation and Disney, certainly with his films, uh, and at times he would overestimate his audience, like uh, when he made Fantasia, for instance. It was uh, he. They said he kind of shot over his audience's heads. It was very sophisticated, and uh, he was ahead of his time in some of that. Uh, Bambi was kind of a, a bit a mixed review kind of thing. He 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 went he he was trying to. It's interesting. He had to kind of learn as he went. He's with cartoons and things back then. You know, he would, uh, with Bambi, he was trying to make it as realistic as possible. And that, that became a critique at the time. It was like, mm. well, that's not what cartoons are. They're not, they're not realistic. And that was so realistic. You might as well have just shot a real, a real deer kind of thing, a real forest. But, mm. um, and so he had to kind of learn and, and go back and forth. And, uh, it, it was interesting just kind of reading some of the backstories of some of the earlier films, like Snow White was, uh, one of the, 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 most uh, successful films of all time. Like, you know, now it just seems like an old cartoon, but, but when you see the numbers, you see how widespread it was, how popular it was, how it just captured everybody's imagination. Yeah. Uh, you realize that that, that is really, you know, w especially earlier on, what you find with Disney is that he will have a brilliant success and then a, maybe a couple of duds. Uh, they're not all brilliant. You know, you, he, yeah. <laughs> he's at it long enough and produced enough that he had a number of ones that were, were successful. But, uh, and, you know, some over time became more so. Uh, but you, you realize, even with someone like that, that not everything he does is successful. He's a, yeah. he's a brilliant guy. He does things first class. But, uh you know, that doesn't mean everything you're going to touch or try is going to work out. And a lot of people will will say that if you're if you're going to have good ideas or be successful, it's really not so much the the quality of your work, but the quantity of it that, you know, you've just produced enough things to that, you know, every once in a while you have a, a winner. Yeah. And it's, it's not that you're a winner all the time, but it's that you produce enough work that that you know you've got some winners yeah. in there to kind of float you over and, all the duds yeah, and sometimes what makes you a winner is that you persevered through the failures right. until you found a, another winner idea a couple of quotes in there uh of course like of course mickey mouse is himself of course helped make uh, walt disney famous he he did the voice of mickey mouse originally eventually he passed it on to someone else but uh and i was interesting reading that he kind of based a lot of his of Mickey Mouse actually on Charlie Chaplin, who was uh, some of the same sort of characteristics. Chaplin at that time was very famous, and and Disney would just watch clips after clips of Charlie Chaplin to try to figure out what made him so appealing. You know, what was it about his mannerisms and things? Mm. And uh, um, but there was some, and it's interesting. Like I read about uh, uh, Mary Poppins, for instance, and uh, he'd actually 
wanted to have Audrey Hepburn be Mary Poppins. He wanted to get Cary Grant to play the role that Dick Van Dyke ultimately did. <laughs> but uh, it, it's interesting some of the the backstories of some of those yeah. things and how he ended up uh, choosing the people he did. Cary Grant turned him down, and he looked at other people. But um, at one point, they asked Disney what he thought, what how it felt to be a celebrity. He said, as far as I can remember, being a celebrity has never helped me uh, uh, make a good impression or a good shot on, in, a, in a polo game or command the obedience of my daughter or impress my wife. It doesn't even keep the fleas off of our dog. And he'd kind of say, you know, sometimes we think when you're a celebrity, life is easier and, and everything kind of opens up for you easy. But he was kind of saying, well... I'm, I may be a celebrity now, but it's still just a lot of hard work and yeah. uh, a lot of perseverance. Uh, I, I talked, uh, he said, uh, everyone in the studio was terrorized by the swift, distinctive uh, click of his heels on the hard, great uh, tile floor and his hacking smoker's cough as he approached a room and the animators would jump into their seats when he entered. Don't be afraid of me, uh, Walt would growl but they were afraid. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, he tells the stories of, um, of developing Disneyland. Uh, and of course that, that there were, there were other, uh, amusement parks at that time. But I, I think the idea of a theme park wasn't as big back then, you know, till like, he invented the different worlds you could go into and he had, you know, Disney characters walking about and stuff like that. And they, they used to be like, here's a roller coaster, here's a bumper car, but but he turned it into a magical place. And uh, yeah. they, they said he loved he loved Disneyland. Um, he said he would, uh, uh, he, he, he had an apartment above the, the fire station at, at Disneyland. And uh, he often would just spend the night there. Just, uh, he just, love being there and walking the streets and uh, and of course most of what he built a lot of what he built was quite spectacular but it but it was most of it was also reduced from what his vision was it was after <laughs> after Roy said well we can't afford that or that right. would be too much you know uh, that's not that's not feasible um, although I think if you could see it now it, it'd probably be uh maybe beyond what he even imagined back then yeah and uh yeah you wonder you know because he dreamed pretty big and uh he uh I, I think that was maybe part of the frustrating thing for him was he envisioned things so big and great and it was just hard for him to ever settle for what was realistic yeah um, and there's a tension there you know I, I i i think sometimes we maybe settle too quickly uh for that it's interesting on a much smaller scale, but uh, we're doing some renovating on our kitchen right now. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to just sink a ton of money into that, but uh, I, I do want it to look nice. It, it's it's a tough walk sometimes. It's like, well, yeah. I could go really cheap and then I'm going to hate my kitchen after spending all this money to make it nicer. And uh, so there was always a flaw in the kitchen. The guys who put a granite countertop in didn't do it quite right in, in one area. And so it threw a whole wall off. It was un un imbalanced and uh, trying to compensate for some shoddy work by a granite person. So I've got a guy that came in yesterday, for a friend of mine that does this kind of work, and uh, I hired him to do it. And he, he basically gave me about four options um, to fix it. And 
I wasn't real thrilled about any of the options. It was just a matter of, and of course my wife is like, well, just whatever is the cheapest one, whatever is what, you know, whatever's the least trouble. But I'm like, well, Lisa, you, you're going to have to live in this kitchen. So I, you know, let's, let's be careful. And so we thought about it, thought about it. Finally, you, you can be pragmatic and sometimes pragmatic just means what's the cheapest thing. What's the easiest thing. Yeah. And I pushed and pushed. And then, um, Actually, I, I kind of suggested what I thought was maybe not the cheapest or the easiest, but would look the nicest. And then even after that, he actually came back and had come up with a even a better way of doing it. And he was all excited. And I, I kind of had a Walt Disney moment, I think, where, <laughs> you know, you can settle. You can say, well, okay, if, that, if, if we're just going to have to settle for that, if we're going to, I know it won't look great, but it'll work or it'd be a lot easier than buying another part or whatever. And, but what I found was if you, if you push sometimes long enough, your people actually get thinking and coming up with better ideas themselves. And ultimately they're kind of excited about solving the problem where it still looks great and it doesn't cost any more or whatever. And, and that's kind of what Walt did. And that's what you see great leaders do is that they, uh, they, 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 they push their people like Steve Jobs did. I mean, he can wear you out, but then you're always proud to be a part of something Steve Jobs yeah. did. You know, you, you, you might've had really long days and nights and a uh, lot of deadlines and pressure to be, to achieve perfection. But, but then if you invented an iPhone or you, you know, you were a part of coming up with some of those solutions, uh, it's like, well, I, I helped write the music score for Mary Poppins or something. It's like, you yeah. might've been crazy in the time, but you look back over your life's work and you thought I did that. I was a part of that. And that's kind of what, what Walt was able to achieve. He, he pushed people, but, but he was, uh, and if you just do it in a way that's always just critical, like this is garbage, you know, this is, this, this is horrible. Well, you're not inspiring people, but yeah. uh, but when you are passionate, and you're excited, and you're you're and, and what Walt would kind of do is to say, we're we're not just making a movie; we're we're creating an experience. This is a work of art. This is going to affect culture for years to come. Uh, we're going to bring joy to people that have gone through the depression and need encouragement. And it, it was never just we're going to just produce something. It right. was much bigger than that. But, uh, but of course, Walt had his, uh, faults as well. And, uh, he, who's a chain smoker, uh, interestingly, he was about 16, 17 or well, near the end of world war two or world war one. And he, um, uh, he actually, uh, lied about his age just to even get in the war, uh, and, uh, had to actually, uh, tinker with his like a birth certificate to, to even like to make himself look older than he really was. He kind of finally managed to get over the end of the war and, uh, in dangerous life. But he was, but you could just tell, here's a person that wants to do something with his life that he can be pleased with. And I think he, he, he saw his dad, I think kind of playing it safe all of his life. And, uh, he just thought, I, I don't want to spend my life just playing it safe. Uh, and when he came back from after World War One, he um, he'd been sending some money home for his uh, for his parents to to uh, put in the bank for him. And when he got back, he had plans. Now he had a bit of a nest egg. He was going to tr- maybe start a company and you know and try to use his artwork and and do some things. 
but his dad had found him a job at like a jelly making factory uh, at, where he'd get paid a steady $25 a week. And so he starts working there, but he's, but he's just chafing under that saying, dad, I don't want to spend my life working for at a warehouse for $25 a week. And, um, his dad just never got it. His dad never understood it. Well, why would you, yeah. why would you, you a perfectly good steady income. Why would you give that up to pursue some foolish dream? Like who's going to earn a living drawing cartoons? Um, and, hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of like, well, the rest is history, but <laughs> and sometimes you feel like some of the great people we've looked at, a lot of the greatness they achieve is really done in response almost to proving their parents wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Say I, you said I was a no good, never amount to anything kind of kid, and so I'm going to show you that that's not true. Well, they but. almost need that adversity early in life to to sort of spur them on to 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 greater things later in yeah. life. Yeah, you, you and you wonder uh, if that's not part of it. That the, in, in fact, some people who live maybe ordinary lives maybe had an ordinary uh, childhood. You know, and, and often like it's like a Napoleon, or it's people that maybe experienced some adversity earlier on, uh, is there something that just gets wired into them to say, yeah. I'm, I will achieve more. I'll, I will rise out of poverty like my parents were in, or I'll, I'll, I will, I'll, I won't just always work for oppressive, uh, managers. I'm going to be a manager or an owner one day and I'll start my own business. And, uh, so that certainly was Walt in many ways. And uh, the, the last thing maybe just to say about him is he, he, he was almost abnormally fearful uh, of death. He uh, and now, of course, he was a chain smoker, and in later years, he just had a chronic smoker's cough. That's how you could tell he was walking down the hallway. Everyone recognized that smoker's cough he had. But yeah. um, but he would not even talk about death, uh, even when people would ask him. At one point, I think his daughter asked something about their grandmother uh, and that how she died and. Walt just kind of snapped at his daughter and said, "We that's we just don't talk about stuff like that." He he mm. he tried it all every possible way to avoid going to funerals. Uh, in fact, one of his uh, longtime colleagues um, said that Walt would never say goodbye. He'd always say, "I'll see you later." Uh, and this particular guy said that the last time he ever saw Walt leave the uh, office, and everyone knew he was deathly ill and they they all knew they might never see him again and he he the last time he left the office he actually said goodbye and mm. that that said to everybody who knew him you know he he didn't say see you later and uh and prophetically that was the last time they saw him alive uh, there at work and so you know he a lot of people say he he had purchased the land and had envisioned drawn up the plans for Disney World it wasn't it wasn't built uh, until after he died but uh even as he was on in his hospital bed in the hospital from which he would not leave uh he his brother Roy would come in and and he would be trying to explain to him everything how he wanted this part to be and he had this great vision for Epcot Center and and it was going to be new and different and he, right to the end, he. I think the thing he feared most about death was just not being able to ever fulfill all the dreams that he had. Yeah. He had so many dreams uh, and so many things he wanted to do, and and life just wasn't long enough for him. He, he mm -hmm. wasn't healthy enough to to do more. But but a fascinating person, and again, as like all these biographies, you see a flawed person. Uh, 
flaws in lots of ways, uh, and yet he managed to get people around him that helped cover his weaknesses. Uh, and uh, he was someone that wasn't just a dreamer. If you just dream, you, you just may be someone who passes through their life daydreaming about what could be. But yeah. he was the kind of person who could inspire others and and put things in motion so that his dreams became a reality. And when you watch some of the Disney films and that he was part of, you, you go to Disney World, Disneyland, uh, you, you have a sense that here's a guy who just thought at a different level than people of his day. Now, now we take a lot of things for granted because so many people have been copycats of what he did. Yeah. But if you could go back in time, I, I remember, uh, I, I lived in, I lived about 20 minutes from Disneyland in California, uh, back in the sixties and, and Disneyland was newer then it w- wasn't nearly as old. And, uh, it was just a magical place, you know, and to, to, to go there was just incredible. Yeah. And, and there just weren't the options that there are now. But, uh, so you realize here's a person that saw what others didn't see and uh, managed to make it uh, a reality. And so just another example, it's a good, good biography, covers a lot of stuff. Uh, you see him, uh, as flawed as he is still being able to accomplish much. And, uh, yeah. and I think that's maybe the bottom line of many of these biographies that the great people of history are the ones not that don't have flaws, but are able to rise above their flaws to compensate yeah. for their flaws and still accomplish something great anyway. Well, certainly he's one who's left a, a lasting legacy on, on our culture for sure. And we'll be sure to leave links to, to that biography that you mentioned uh, in our show notes. And until next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackv.org.